Welcome to the 340th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Victoria Gosling, author of the debut novel, Before the Ruins. And stay tuned after the interview for an excerpt from the audiobook of Before the Ruins. Stay tuned for the interview. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen to audiobooks during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Reading and writing podcast special offer, get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with code RWPODCAST. That's code RWPODCAST for two audiobooks for the price of one for your first month of membership at Libro.fm. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Victoria Gosling, author of the debut novel, Before the Ruins. Victoria, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, if someone hasn't heard yet about your new novel, Before the Ruins, how would you describe it? Um, It's a mystery um, novel, and it's about um, a woman called uh, Andy, called Andrea, and she's in her, somewhere in her 30s and has a very good job in London and, a, and all the things she could uh, want and materially. And uh, a friend from her childhood, Peter, uh, goes missing. And um, his mother calls her and asks her to find him. And doing so means she has to, to go back into um, and start investigating the past that they share that involves uh, something that happened when they were young, uh, when they were in their late teens, an abandoned manor house, when they played a game um, that was kind of around a case of missing diamonds, a missing diamond necklace. And so do you remember the original impetus or idea that led you to write Before the Ruins? Um, I think when I was about 17, um, similar to the age Andy and her friends are when they first visit the manor, I was once um, with a group of people I didn't know very well, and one of them suggested we go back to their house. And I think, you know, we'd, we'd all had something to drink. Um, and I remember we did, and it was this incredible manor house. And um, I ended up staying over. And in the morning I left quite early, I think I scurried away. And, I, and I'd only ever seen it once, and it sort of stayed with me, this incredible house. Um, and so that's probably in, in, in many ways the uh, inspiration for the setting. Um, and I played with the idea many times um, in various different ways. And originally I decided that I was going to write a novel and there was going to be a scene set at the manor house in the 1930s, the night the diamond necklace went missing. It was, the, it was stolen and never found. Um, and then the more I, I, I played with the idea and started making notes, I couldn't find a way into that story. It felt it was too big. It was too intimidating. And I, I really didn't know how I would, how I would do it all. And so I went back to the drawing board and then I suddenly sort of started to think about, okay, there's this diamond necklace that's gone missing at this house and it's never been found. And the night it went missing, the person who they believed to have stolen it was found the next morning um, dead in the rose garden. Um, so the idea is this necklace is missing, but it's likely it's never left the property uh, because that night there was a lot of snow and um, there was no traffic that could 
you know, could, could pass the road. So somewhere on the property is a missing diamond necklace. Um, and I started to think about that. And then I started to see in my, in my mind's eye this, this group of teenagers playing a game where they're trying to find it. And I think that's probably where the novel really began, the one that I managed to write in the end. Sure. Well, as I mentioned before, The Ruins is your debut novel. Was it the first novel that you had written? No, no. Um, I have been writing for, you know, I think one of my earliest memories is using my mum's typewriter and uh, drawing a picture of a tiger and then trying to type underneath it a story. So <laughs> I always um, loved the idea of making books. Um, I was read to a lot uh, when I was little and I loved, we had a library in our village and it was my favourite place in the village. Um so I had a go in my early 20s, and then I realized that it's, it's not as easy as it looks. Um, and, and then I had another go um, in my late 20s, a much more serious go. Um, and I was very lucky in that I got an agent, and um, she worked with me, and we, we made that, that book um, better. And it went out, and the, it went out to a few publishers, and the feedback we got was so lovely. It was, we really like this. You know, this is really promising. And they said some very nice things, but nobody bought it. Um, and event, so eventually I had to, to move on. So I tried something else and that, that didn't work. So this is actually, it's my proper, Before the Ruins is my third novel that I really gave my all to. Um, and uh, I was, I think, you know, third time lucky. Well, are there writers or books that inspired you on your own writing journey as you were working on these three different novels and then finally uh, wrote Before the Ruins and had it published? Um, so I read a lot um, and I have, you know, there are authors that I, I really enjoy and then never return to. And then there are ones and also there are books you really enjoy at the time, but they don't really stay with you. And there are books you maybe have a more problematic relationship with, but they keep drawing you back. So. Um, I would say in terms of books I go back to, um, Pat Barker's Regeneration Trilogy, which is about um, largely about the First World War, um, uh, but also about many other things, um, is something I, I, read, I sort of read every 10 years. Um, and it holds up. It's, I think I've probably in my third, third time of reading it recently. Um, I loved for a long time Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited, which is also set around a very grand house was something the magic of it um was really compelling and then again i think i got to my third or fourth reading of it of it and i suddenly realized it wasn't there anymore for me i'd sort of moved past it um but graham green pat barker um hanif qureshi uh joanne beard um they're all writers i return to regularly along with the russians i'm you know huge uh, fan of of so classic Russian literature, Chekhov and Tolstoy, Dostoevsky particularly. Um, and then there's all the, the novels uh, that seem to, brilliant novels that seem to be being written at the moment. Uh, so um, Sophie McIntosh is somebody I'm, yeah, I think is marvellous. Her second book's just come out, Blue Ticket. Um, Deborah Levy, um, uh, I'll always, whenever a Sarah Waters uh, book comes out, um, I'm always delighted and straight off down the bookshop for that. That's great. Well, I know you're the founder of the Reader Berlin and the Berlin Writing Prize. Can you tell us about the Reader Berlin and the Berlin Writing Prize? Absolutely. So I I grew up in, in Wiltshire and I went to university in, in Manchester and in Amsterdam. And, and then I traveled a bit in my 20s and 
worked in London and and um, then when I decided I was going to really give uh, writing a novel a go, I moved home and uh, moved back in with my parents um, into their spare room and I worked nights and, and evenings and, and wrote in the day. And then I'd finished this first book um, that I got the agent for that didn't sell and I, that took me about three years, that process. And after that, I realised that okay I you know I've written a book that hasn't sold but there's been really good feedback on it and I've you know I've got so far and it went on to win an unpublished novel award maybe maybe I should write another one and I really wanted to so this is a very long answer to your question but I really wanted to and I did not know I'd had enough of living with my parents and they'd had enough of me god bless them um and I thought where can I go in England um or you know in in Great Britain uh, where I can sort of maybe live on my own and work part-time because I'm not someone who, you know, you read about these authors, they get up at five in the morning and they, you know, Tony Morrison, she wrote for two hours before work um, uh, or George Gissing, he'd work 14 hours a day and then come home and write half the night. I need quite a lot of time. I'm a slow, slow writer and uh, I would find it very difficult to do an hour in the morning here and there. So I needed this, you know, place to live and a job that only took up half my time. And I couldn't see how I could do that in the UK um, and, and pay the bills. But I met a couple of people and they said, go to Berlin. Berlin at that time in 2008, 12 years ago, um, it was uh, you could get flats really, really cheaply. But the wages were kind of there wasn't a lot of uh, possibility with jobs. If you didn't speak good German, it was teaching English or tour guiding. So I taught English and I got a really cheap flat and I worked half the time. And after about three years, I'd written my next book that um, uh, was I just left it in a drawer in the end. It wasn't it hadn't really worked out. I, I was tired of teaching the English and I, I found that um, there's only so many times you can try and explain to people the present perfect without wanting to do yourself serious injury. So <laughs> I, I, I thought, well, what, what else do I like doing? And I had um, taken part in, at university in a, a little bit of a creative writing. It was like part of my course. Um, I thought, well, I like doing manuscript assessments. I had quite a lot of friends who are writers and I used to assess their work for them. And I'd, I'd taken a creative writing course. So I thought, well, maybe I can I can try and, and do that. And it was just about the time where Facebook and, and various other websites made it very easy suddenly to collect con, uh, connect communities uh, of people who are interested in certain things. And there's another website called Meetup came along. And so I started hosting creative writing classes um, and a couple of literary events. And then suddenly it just massively took off. It was at the time that Berlin was a city that really missed out on the recession. Um, all these startups, because the um, the rent was so cheap, all these startups came to Berlin um, to set up their businesses, a lot of tech businesses. So it had a bit of a boom, and it brought in all these international people who spoke English and wanted to um, were creative and, and they wanted to, to write. So uh, quite quickly, after a year or two, I found that I had I had a lot of tutors who were working with me. And they were hosting poetry and script writing and other kinds of workshops. And then we started inviting, you know, every author wants to come to Berlin for a weekend. So we started inviting them to come and, and teach for us and do a literary event with us reading. Um, and so that's how the reader sort of took off. Um, and then after a while, I started, you know, in the beginning, I was running these quite small writing competitions locally to try and get people to come along and, and connect with us. Um, and um, and then we took it a stage further and we called it the Berlin Writing Prize and we got some sponsorship on board and the British Council worked with us and, and we started um, managing to offer a prize that people could come and live for a month in Berlin if they uh, um, if they won the competition. 
Uh, and so those those two things sort of went hand in hand after a while. That's great. So I assume, are you doing all of that uh, in terms of people writing in English or have you learned German at this point? Um, I speak reasonable German, but um, mm -hmm. I certainly couldn't give anybody in-depth feedback <laughs> on their German writing. No. So we offer, um, all our courses are in English. Um, Got it. And we, I have tried to host in, in, in German. I got a German author on board, but because my whole network's English language, um, right, right. get the participants together. And I think it seems that the German culture is a little bit more reluctant. Um, I think it's probably how England was 20 years ago in that people think writers are born, not made. Um, and the idea of a writing course is, is it's not so popular there. I think that when I was probably about 20 years ago, there was still a, um, a bit of suspicion about um, write, creative writing courses. And I certainly felt that I thought, well, you know, you just, you just be a writer. Um, and it, you know, I wish I, I wish I hadn't thought that then because I think it would have saved me a lot of time. I think what I've learned from other writers um, through teaching and um, and being in workshop settings has been really invaluable. And it just, yeah, you just cut all those corners off. Um, sure. So are you working on another novel now? I am. Um, I was very lucky in that um, my publisher bought the rights to, to my second novel. So I've got a, I've got a little bit of money and that means I can... Um, not do so much other work because in the past I've you know been juggling two or three jobs and and um, and writing. Um, so I'm actually as of 2021, I'm taking a bit of time off uh, from all my other activities. I've got other people to to step in for me, and I'm going to be writing full time. I have written probably about half a draft, half a first draft of maybe a little bit more of the next novel. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? Um, it depends where you're at. I guess if you are someone who has always wanted to write or thought a lot about writing, um, but you've not managed to, to get a lot down because, you know, paying the bills and all those other reasons. Um, I think in the beginning, I set myself these massive um, targets that I would, you know, I had to write, you know, a novel. Um, I had to write something really big. And I think, um, a really important step for me was to say, actually, I'm going to, uh, this is before my um, first novel, I'm just going to stop and write some short stories. Um, and even breaking that down into, I'm going to write a piece of flash fiction today. or um, And also, I think, so you're breaking it down, small goals, um, read a lot of uh, good writing, read a lot of contemporary writing, I think is important. Don't always stay with the, the Russians and, and, and the people you love from, to, you know, for a long time ago. Um, and also be, it's such a cliche to say, uh, be your own cheerleader. But I find that um, if I can, if I just, you know, writing is hard. And that if you acknowledge that to yourself, that you're trying to do something that's, that's difficult and that you're also doing something where it's not like ballet or um, like, you know, playing music live where you have to get it right at the first time, you know, or, you know, at the moment with writing, you, you know, you knock it out or you, you get it out as best you can. And maybe it's not maybe bits of it are good, but maybe it's not that great. But, you know, with this art form, the whole thing is about going back and refining it and filtering it and just telling yourself that whatever you're, you're making, it's just a step closer to, to where you eventually want to get and being really kind. Um, especially if you haven't written for a while and you're not in the habit of writing, it's, it's like starting exercise again. I'm not a very sporty person to say the least. And I just didn't, I didn't do any exercise last year apart from sort of wandering around, maybe a bit on, of cycling around Berlin. 
and now I'm trying to get fit again. And um, it's really hard to get going again. And I think like writing's like that. If you haven't had time for a while, um, and I always find that when I, you know, um, come back to, to writing, you know, if I, I wrote my last novel, you know, the day, my debut novel before the ruins, I wrote it in, in sprint. So I'd have to do other work for, you know, two or three months sometimes. And I'd have six weeks or, I'd, you know, um, or I'd managed to get a week here or a week there. And always I found that when I came back to my work and I hadn't done it for a while, like I'd had that six weeks break from it, I'd had, I spent the first two days crying because it just felt hopeless. It felt impossible to get back into it. I felt that what I'd written wasn't any good. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, and then on day three or four, I'd have a breakthrough. Um, and suddenly I'd be quite happy again and quite optimistic about it. And I've learned to recognize these patterns now that you're, when your brain is hypercritical of your work, um, it often it isn't right. I mean, there is a time you know, to be critical of your work when you're editing it. But those kind of strong sort of, you know, swings of emotion that you might have while you're writing, they're often... Um, not really attached to, to reality, the reality of whether your work is working or not. That's good advice. So what fiction or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um, I've read two books that go quite hand in hand, I think. So I'm, I'm in the middle of reading Shuggy Bane, which just won the Booker Prize, which is um, Britain's you know, uh, biggest um, uh, writing prize, fiction. So it's, it's a novel that's set in Glasgow. Uh, and it is um, I was a bit worried about it because I I do I'm quite I read to escape quite a lot of the time I like things that are that tr- a bit transporting and sometimes especially now with the with the, the pandemic and various other things um, I was a bit worried about Shuggy Bane because I knew that the subject matter was involved you know uh, poverty and alcoholism and um, that the characters were really going to go through it uh, but I was delighted when I I read the first couple of chapters because despite that being the case there's also so much humour. It's, it's a real Glaswegian um, humour and the, the voices are just so full of poetry and, and verve. I, I absolutely loved it. And then in non-fiction, something that goes quite hand in hand with that is a book called uh, Low Born. And it's by a writer called Kerry Hudson. And it's a memoir about um, 
kind of growing up on the edges, really growing up as the daughter of someone who has issues around alcoholism and, and mental health um, and being, you know, one of those underclass kids, uh, you know, the way she describes it as being the kid that your mother didn't want, you know, didn't want her child playing with. Um, and uh, she goes back in this memoir, she goes back to her she grew up in sort of five or six places in the UK, originally starting in Scotland, which is the setting for Shaggy Bane. And she goes back to these places where she remembers living in these, um, you know, very poor accommodations and going to school and, and the struggles her family had. And um, again, it's written with such warmth and understanding. Um, and it kind of gives a picture of contemporary Britain that I found um, really interesting. So those two um, uh, I've just uh, just got through. I have to check those out. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel? Um, oh, um, well, I am regularly uh, chatting away on Twitter um, at Victoria Gosling. And I'm also on Instagram at Victoria Gosling. Um, and if people are interested in the reader and, and um, a lot of our courses because of the pandemic are online, if people want to come along and do a course with one of uh, one of our tutors in Berlin, they can now do it from anywhere in the world. We've had people tuning in from Los Angeles and uh, New Zealand and, and all kinds of places. And that's the readerberlin.com. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Victoria Gosling, author of the debut novel, Before the Ruins. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Victoria, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much for having me. Great. And now stay tuned for an excerpt from the audiobook of Before the Ruins by Victoria Gosling, narrated by Kristen Atherton, and available wherever audiobooks are sold. What, then, is the right way of living? Life must be lived as play. Playing certain games, making sacrifices, singing and dancing. And then a man will be able to propitiate the gods and defend himself against his enemies and win in the contest. Plato. Laws. Chapter 1. Game. The year Peter went missing was the year of the floods. The newspapers were full of them, that and the spate of plummeting businessmen troubling the capital's pavements. Rain fell on the roofs, and the businessmen fell off them, leapt off them, were thrown off them, all over London, as if it were a craze. Before Peter went missing, I read the reports carefully, as though by paying close attention I might work out the rules of the game. I don't know why. Perhaps I wanted to play too. I'd always had a weakness for games, a trait I shared with Peter. I was on my way home from a meeting in Paris when the call came. It was a Wednesday, late April, and as the train hurtled towards London, night was coming on. The clouds were darkest blue, a thin rim of brightness hugged the horizon. I was on my laptop, reading about the latest in a series of leaked financial papers. When I glanced up, the last light slipped away, and my reflection coalesced upon the window, like the darkness was developing fluid. 
My phone rang, and I rooted violently for it in my handbag, alive with panic, as though I was secretly, desperately, hoping for a momentous and life-changing call from someone who would ring only once and withhold their number. In my wildest dreams, I would not have guessed Peter's mother would be the caller. Andrea? Are you there? It's Patricia, Mrs. White. When I didn't answer, she went on. Is that you, Andy? Is it you? Yes, it's me. How are you? Had the vicar died? A quick, stabbing pain, deeper than I would have expected. We're both well, dear. You sound a bit different. Thinking about it later, I would realize she meant posher. Peter says you're doing very well. Her voice was trembly. She had always been old, even when we were small. Her eyes were a pale china blue. When I used to knock at the vicarage door, her mouth would purse in disappointment, as though she'd been expecting a boy, not a girl, but a nice boy from a nice home called Rufus or Hugo. But there I was, with my crew cut and pink plastic earrings, smiling the gap-toothed smile of a master criminal and inviting Peter to throw sticks in the stream, by which I meant trapping a slowworm and posting it through Mrs. East's letterbox because I'd heard my mother call her a witch. We were always up to something or other. It's Peter, dear. I'm worried about him. We haven't heard from him. Not this past month. Have you spoken to him? I'm afraid I haven't, Mrs. White. I imagined her standing in the vicarage front room, staring out towards the yew hedge, the vicar beside her with a crochet blanket draped over his knees. It seemed wrong, talking to her on an iPhone. She came from a generation that knew rationing and hand-cranked their cars and had uncles who died in the trenches. A time of myth, it seemed now, like that of Arthur and his knights. It's been four Sundays now. He always calls us on Sundays after Evensong. I've tried calling him, but I just get the recording. I hesitated. My instinct was to cover for him, only I didn't know what I was covering for. It had been my birthday, my 38th, the previous week. Usually, Peter remembered and sent a text, but not this time. I don't see Peter very often. We sort of move in different circles, and work is always so busy. I mean, mine and Peter's. Have you tried calling him there? Or his other friends? He told us he changed jobs. I thought I wrote the name of the company down, but I can't find it. It was a foreign name, or names. A sort of string of foreign names. And he hasn't brought anyone home in, well, in quite a while. No, it was unlikely that Peter would have brought anyone home. You were always such good friends, you and Peter. And Marcus and Emma, of course. But you and Peter were friends first. I know he always thought of you as his best friend, 
even after. She paused. Everything that happened. Everything that happened. Peter had wanted to talk about it at the wedding. The wedding I invited him to, and after which he disappeared, if only from Patricia. Have you tried Googling him? I mean, for his work number. Googling? No, I was hoping... You will look into it for me, Andy. You'll find out what he's up to, won't you? After we hung up, I stared out of the window. The train carriage was quiet. We raced past a string of street lamps on a flyover, lights blurring so the night was stitched with golden thread. I wondered why I'd agreed. It might have been her calling me Andy. For well over a decade, Peter's mother was pretty much the only person to call me by my full name. But I have been Andrea, or frequently Ms. Carter, for many years now. Then there was the fact she had always loved Peter, fervently, protectively. When he was 16, she was still cutting the crusts off his crab paste sandwiches, unaware that he'd been throwing them to the jackdaws in the graveyard since he was seven and buying chocolate bars for lunch with money he'd come by via the vicar's trouser pockets. Yes, Patricia loved Peter. And yet I don't know if she ever really knew him. She and the vicar had had some fairly clear ideas about who he should be, and in the end, I think he consented to play pretend with them, to give them what they wanted, which meant, I suppose, that he loved them too. At King's Cross, I made my way underground. There, the walls were papered with moving, glowing dreams. Descending on the escalators to the Victoria Line, I found myself thinking that if ads were really dreams, the preoccupations of the unconscious, then all we wanted to be was sexy. Because they all said sexy. The women coy or inviting or half-naked. The men white of tooth and thick of mane. So that must be what we were buying. Not good or kind or honourable the qualities the vicar had once struggled to impress on us. Just sexy. I forced myself to march the few streets home, wondering how quickly I could get into bed and fall asleep. I was always tired at that time. Doing my job, sleep came at a premium. But even when I did get a chance to catch up, it was a tiredness that sleep could not cure. If I had divided myself into parts, body, brain, heart, soul. I would have been unable to tell you which bit precisely was so exhausted. Once home, I didn't immediately go to bed. Instead, I fussed about the flat, making tiny adjustments to things, wiping down the inside of the bin lid, passing a duster over the surfaces, even though the cleaner had been the day before. The fretfulness in Patricia's voice had got to me. I wondered what Peter was playing at, which made me think of the wedding, of the last time I had seen Peter. He had wanted to talk about the manor, but I had closed him down. As I laid out my clothes for the next day, I had no inkling that, in light of Peter's disappearance, the manor and, 
everything that happened there was a subject that was going to be thoroughly reopened. That in pursuit of Peter, I would see and speak to them all again. Except, of course, for the one who could no longer speak to anyone. Slipping between the sheets, I checked my emails and scrolled through the news one last time, then turned out the light. In the darkness, I lay listening to the quiet street and the distant sirens. In London, no matter where you live, there are always sirens at night. I thought of the scenes the police were being called to, the people being raced to hospital in the backs of ambulances. I thought of all the games no longer being played, of all the games gone wrong. All of which should have meant bad dreams, or at least unsettled ones. But in fact, my dream was quite the opposite. Although in a way that was worse, since waking from it was so painful. I don't remember all of it, of course. Was left only with a few images and a feeling. My bare feet, ankle deep in the wet emerald lawn the sun falling just so on the manor. And to the left, the lake where the wind stirred the reeds and the little white temple cast its dark shadow on the ripples. The whole afternoon lay ahead, spectral in its perfection. The sky would stay its clear glassy blue. The shadows would creep feline over the grass. And then, as the sun sank, the stone of the place would begin to exhale the heat of the whole long day. And in my dream, I knew exactly which day it was. I knew that today was the day of the apocalypse. Today was the 20th of June, 1996. The day the four of us first went to the manor. The day we met David. Just before we found out about the diamonds. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.